Well, we're starting a new series, uh, a teaching series here, and we're looking at the most misused verses in the Bible. And how many of you, when you heard that title, immediately one came to mind? Like, you, you just got that, like, oh, I'm just, everyone always says that one. So this, over these next 10 weeks, we're going to be looking at topics like, uh, judge not lest ye also be judged, right? Judging others. That's now actually the most widely known verse, which has surpassed John 3.16 to the average person today. We're going to be looking at things, uh, these ones that are thrown out, you know, a plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Jesus as the firstborn over all creation. If my people who are called by my name, dot, 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 I can do all things through Christ. Uh, God will give you no more than you can handle. You guys know these ones, right? We've heard them so much. Um, God works all things together for good, right? These are the kinds of ones that, that we want to jump into and look at and explore and say, man, am I, am I really reading this right? Am I, am I understanding this correctly? Because if you think about it, we live in a culture that's about sound bites, it's, it's small, compact things. Uh, we believe that you can communicate your philosophy of life on something as small as a bumper sticker, right? Um, <clears throat> we, we, we oftentimes get our news from Twitter where the maximum number of characters is 140 characters. Sound bites, right? Um, oftentimes, many of us engage with scripture from a little passage that's on our refrigerator, Right? Or maybe a tearaway calendar that it's one sentence. But it, it, there's no context there for me to really know, what is this talking about? And then I immediately, how do I apply this to my life today? How do I, how do I live? And so even people who, who have the regular practice of, of Bible reading oftentimes do it like this, where they go, okay, let's see, I'm going to, you know, 2 Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, and, I don't know, chapter 3. And I, might, and, you know, I might read a sentence or two. This is a letter written to an individual. And I read a sentence to maybe a whole paragraph. But I don't necessarily think about, like, what, what was the broader context? What's, what's going on there? And so this series, over these next 10 weeks, is, is essentially learning about how do I properly interpret God's word, but then also apply it to my life of how, how I live in a way that's faithful to the text, faithful to God in a way that is glorifying to God. And it, it doesn't distort God or what, what's God's will for my life or for us as a community. So we're going to come face to face with some of the most misused verses in the Bible, verses that have so often uh, lost their context. And so the, uh, we've sort of, they've, they've sort of taken on new foreign meanings that, that no one really ever read them that way, just because of our culture and time and all that sort of thing. Um, and even throughout all of human history, I would suggest every civilization, every culture, um, has known that it's a very powerful thing to have the communication of God or the communication of the gods. Um, if you go even all the way back to the, uh, to the ancient Greeks... There was one uh, God in particular. You heard this guy's name before? Hermes. Hermes is one of the sons of Zeus in Greek mythology. 
in Homer's Odyssey, uh, Hermes lives uh, on Mount Olympus, and what, what Hermes' job is, is essentially, is to take the messages of the gods to the people. He's the delivery guy. Or sometimes take a message from one god to another god, sort of like an oracle. But this is this, is this, this role of, of this god Hermes. And so if you ever pick up a, maybe a book on reading the Bible, interpreting, you're going to come across kind of a technical phrase. And that phrase that biblical scholars use is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics comes from this word right here, Hermes. It's, hermeneutics is simply the, the art, the science, the task, or whatever you'd say, of how do I read this? And, and like, what's the message here? What am I, how am I supposed to understand this? What, is, what does this mean? In fact, this word worked its way into the Greek language. So much so that when, when the New Testament writers are writing, they use this word right here, Luke possibly the only Gentile author in the New Testament, Luke 24. Remember when he tells this story of after the resurrection, Jesus is walking with the disciple, or these two disciples, they don't know who he is. And he says, why are you so you know, downtrodden? This is the road to Emmaus story, if you remember that one. And it says that, that Jesus explained to them everything in the scriptures about him. It uses this, this idea, this base word here. He did hermeneutics with them. Or in, in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul's writing to the church at Corinth and he's giving instructions like, you guys in worship, you're out of control. Like you've got this going on and that going on. And hey, when you, when you, like when there's a word in tongues, if it's corporately done, you have to have a hermeneutic. You have to have an interpretation. So he, he's using that very idea there. Um, think about other things. Think about art. You go into... Um, a museum, and when there's actually someone there who can explain this piece of art to you, well, here's what was going on in the painter's mind, right? Or a piece of literature that you're not familiar with, maybe it's Shakespeare, and, and someone can say, oh, here's what he's, you know, here's what he's doing in the st you know, stands or whatever it might be. Uh, my wife and I sold a house and bought a house over the summer. Worst experience in my life. It, it, it was just it was, so, it was the most stressful thing I've done in a long time. And I, I know I stressed over it more than I should. And it, it was just, but when it came time to, you know, you have to sit down both with the selling and the, and the buying, you have to sit down and there's all these like legal documents, right? It's so confusing. It's just, it's just horrible. And there's, there's tons of papers. Well, fortunately, my, my dad and my two brothers have a real estate license. So they're like, doing hermeneutics for me. You know, that's like, you know, they're explaining it to me, you know, you know I'm like, okay, explain to me like I'm a 10-year-old, and they do, and I'm like, explain to me like I'm a five-year-old, because I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. But th this is something that, that goes on all the time. Imagine this. A father says to his daughter, before she goes out at night, um, now, you're going to be home by midnight, won't you? Is that an inquiry? Is it an assumption or is it a command? You don't know, right? You've, you've got to kind of, now if you're a father, you know, it's a command, right? But if you hear a phrase like that, you have to like decode a lot of stuff going on besides the words that are said, right? You have to do 
hermeneutics. You have to try to figure out what, it, what, what are you meaning? Is this, is this a question? Is this, is this a command? Is it, is it something different? Now imagine you've got this book. It's actually, it's actually a collection of 66 different books. It's actually a whole library of books. And it wasn't written in your original language. It was written in a different language. But it was written like it's an ancient text. And it was written from a completely different cultural perspective. And, and, and what I'm told is that this is, this is going to be the key to f- human flourishing. <laughs> and it's this, wow, that's kind of like a big thing here. Yeah, I have to do hermeneutics. I have to say, what's going on here? What is this telling me? What is God saying to me? What is this story about? How do I find myself in this story here. And again, scripture, I would say, um, agrees that it's a powerful thing to have the words of God. Listen to, if you have your Bibles, open to 2 Timothy 3, or turn your Bibles on, however you like to read them. 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, before I read the verse, let me do what it is that I'm saying is so important and give some context. Paul's writing to this young, young church leader guy, Timothy, and he's giving him, him some instructions. And in the context, what's leading up to this is he's saying, you're going to encounter two things, Timothy. You're going to have persecution, that's strain from the outside, and you're going to have false teaching, strain from the inside. Two different ways you're going to be hit, okay? So that's sort of the context where he says, but as for you... I'm actually going to start in verse 14, 2 Timothy 3, 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. You know those who taught you. And you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus the Messiah. And then this big phrase here, listen to this. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. Let me come back to that in a second. All scripture is God-breathed. And he says, here's why that's important. It's useful or it's profitable. It's functional for a teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for, for training up in righteousness so that the person of God may be completely equipped for every good work. The word he uses, this word you've probably seen before, uh, theos is the Greek word. We do theology, right? Or if someone has a theistic worldview, they believe it. Just, it's just the general word for, for God, right? And then the other word he uses here, did I do too many P-N-E-U-E-U-M? I think... I'm a horrible speller in English or any other language. The, the other word he uses is, is pneuma. What do you think of when you hear that? Pneuma. If you have a bad cold, you might get pneumonia, okay? Um, or a pneumatic drill or, you know, whatever it might be. Not a drill. You wouldn't have a pneumatic drill. You'd have a pneumatic something. Um, the word he uses, he says, all scripture is theonoustos. Theonoustos. All scripture is God-breathed. Pneuma is just the word for breath. All scripture, he says, it's, it's breathed out by God. Somehow, these texts that have human fingerprints all over them, Luke writes differently than Paul, and this guy uses different language than that. It's very human. 
somehow God is superintending this writing amidst all of the frail, messed up, broken people who are the authors of it. All scripture is theonoustos. All scripture is God breathed. It's not merely a human document. It's the message delivered from God. It's coming, it's coming to us. And so that there's this, um, you know, the ancient Greeks knew it, the ancient Hebrews, the ancient Christians knew it. To possess God's word, it's a thing of enormous power. It's a thing of enormous responsibility. And potentially, it's a thing of enormous danger if it's mishandled, right? If it's uh, inappropriately used. Um, Adolf Hitler was very famous for misusing the words of Jesus early on in his political career. Um, once he got far enough along, he kind of jettisoned any use of that because he realized it wasn't needed with the culture. He had accrued the power that he needed. But early on, he was very famous for, for quoting the words of Jesus. In fact, in uh, 1822, in a speech in Munich, Germany, Hitler um, was referring to times in Jesus's life where, like, remember when Jesus went into the temple and the money changers are there and Jesus starts turning over the table and it says he, ma he made a scourge or whip and he drove them all out, okay? In that context, let me read for you. Listen to the horror of how Hitler twisted the words and the actions of Jesus. Quote, this is a section from his speech. <clears throat> my feelings as a Christian point me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. It points me to the man who once in loneliness, surrounded only by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them. In boundless love, as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells about how the Lord at last rose and in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and of adders. How terrific was his fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Now, see what he did there? He's quoting the same story. It's, you all know it. I know it very well. But what he did is he took the words and actions of Jesus that Jesus applied to a very specific few wicked men who, who were turning something upside down and, and so really making it impossible for those far from God to come near. And he, he hung the label of poison by one broad brushstroke. He hung this label of poison around an entire people group. This, now, this is an extreme example, but it shows it's dangerous to do this poorly when it comes to the word of God. And think about how relevant this idea is even in our own day and age. One of the most, uh, you know, if there's a word or phrase trending on Twitter would be fake news, right? Think about what that's saying. The fake news and one side claims the other side is, and so it, it, it doesn't matter where you stand, but this concept, it, it's, it's sort of the buzzword, right? That's fake news, meaning what? You're misrepresenting, you're misquoting, uh, you're giving misinformation, you're, you're misinterpreting, you're doing this in a crummy way. 
fake news. But like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Fake news started on page three of the Bible. It goes all the way back. Genesis 1 and 2, we, we have God creates this good world, very good in fact, and he places image bearers, our very first parents, Adam and Eve, in this beautiful, like, eco-friendly garden with everything that's perfect. Relationship is good with him, with each other. And um, in this perfect environment, he, he gives them mostly positive commands, right? Um, he says, cultivate. It means you've got a world sitting right in front of you. It's packed with potential. Baby, pull it out, Okay cultivate. He says, I want you to have dominion over it. I want you to rule. I want you to rule in my stead and in my vein, how I rule. I want you to be my viceroy. I want you to enjoy all of the good food because it's all good and healthy. Except one negative command. The one negative command he gives is, however, I do not want you to eat that one tree. There's fruit on that one tree that I do not want you to eat of. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's this creature that we get no backstory behind. He's in the garden and he's clearly in rebellion against God, but he's a creature. And, and this creature in the form of a serpent comes to the, the woman and begins this temptation and he has several goals in mind. It, it seems he wants to destroy. He can't destroy God, but he can destroy image bearers of God, possibly. He wants to destroy God's good work that, that he has created. He wants to gain control, enslave, whatever it might be. He wants to be the master. He wants to control their destinies to have the place that only God rightly deserves. And how does he go about doing that? What, is he, what, what are his tactics in doing that? Well, he does it by attempting to undermine God's voice. He wants to introduce a new hermeneutic. <laughs> and if I can do this, I can ruin the entire human project. If I just introduce a new hermeneutic. And so the account begins like this, page three. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So now look at, look, look at the tactic, this initial tactic. Initially, he just wants to uh, introduce, plant, suspicion, uh, cast uh, seeds of doubt. Did God actually say? And then, and then he goes further, and he intentionally massages the message. <laughs> he just misquotes it. Just a little, little bit. Did God actually say you shall not, not eat from any tree in the garden? Now think about what's God's original command? Just one. All good. There's just one. And what's the tactic there? He, yeah, he, he kind of implies by God saying no to one thing, he's sort of just killing all your joy here, right? He, he sort of universalizes it and um, says, you know, really the prohibition is against anything, I guess. Interesting, the very first question ever recorded in the Bible is nothing less than a misquotation of God. 
But thankfully, to Eve's credit, she gives a correction. No, that's not what he said. And she quotes back to him kind of the correct version. Uh, and she says, no, but she, she adds a bit to it. And see, the author of Genesis is trying to get us to see what's going on here. He, he tweaks it just enough to make the reader go, well, what? that's different than the way I read it before. Yeah, it's different. It's, it's a bit of a different hermeneutic. Something's happening here. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it. Here's the addition. Or touch it, or you will die. And then Satan kind of sarcastically questions the legitimacy and the goodness of these moral restrictions that God has given. Uh, verse 4 and 5, he says, no, 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 no. <laughs> you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is planting seeds of doubt, right? Essentially what he's saying is, what's with the rules, right? Why have boundaries? Think about it. God made you to be free. Why not have an unfettered, unshackled freedom? Can't you see that God's just afraid that you're going to end up like him? God's holding back from you. He doesn't have your best intentions in mind. Because else, why else would he say just not that? That must be the best thing. <laughs> That's probably the thing he's reserving for himself. God's selfish, isn't he? He wants things for himself and he doesn't want to share. But these are just questions. I'm not trying to confront you. It's just thoughts. See, here's the point. Satan wanted Eve to see God's word in a new context. The, the command, don't eat of that tree. What was the context of it initially? Meaning, why? It was to protect, right? What's the new context? He's withholding, right? When I tell my kids, hey, wear your helmet when you're riding down the street, it's not because I don't want their, you know, them to have the joy of their hair blowing in the wind, right? It's because I don't want their head cracking open, right? But see, that's what he's saying is he doesn't care about your safety. Let your, wind, let your hair blow in the wind, right? That's what he's trying to keep from you. And so the serpent's tactics are to, to misconstrue God's word when he suggests you will not die. In fact, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. And this is an outright lie here. This, remember John 8, Jesus says, Satan, he's the father of lies. He's been lying from the beginning. Uh, one, one commentator put it like this. He wrote, the serpent attempted to portray God as a, selfish, as a selfishly insecure, risk-taking deity who is irrationally afraid that his creation will no longer need him unless restrictions are placed upon them. He further baited her with the idea that unrestricted human, human freedom and human reason are the highest of all virtues. And if that were not enough, he appealed to the prideful idea that one could be like God or even be his own God. Ironically, throughout history, many world religions and cults use this exact same idea. Um, if, if there's a cult of the modern West, it's that you can, you can be the captain of your own destiny. 
You can determine what's right and what's wrong. You shouldn't have any restrictions on your life. You should have this unfettered freedom. That's the cult of the modern West. It's, it's, it's the oldest one in the book. I mean, this comes from the oldest, you know what the oldest profession is? That's advertising, right? <laughs> See this apple? You need it, you want it, just one soul. That's right? the oldest profession there is. And we know the result. Eve took the fruit, ate it, just as Adam did. He was there with her at the time. And it says in verse 6, their eyes were opened, and then they had the shocking realization, I'm naked, and I don't like it, and I don't want you to see me, and I want to hide. And they immediately enter shame. Gosh, that's a horrible thing, isn't it? Shame, one of the most destructive things in the world, in the church. Shame enters into the picture And now the heart of the human person is bent toward selfishness. It's bent toward self-protection. It's bent toward protecting um, my clan and me over your clan and you or whatever it might be. And now the human heart has a natural revulsion for things like law. Law. That's, That's restricting my freedom. There's, there's, there's a prideful appeal in my heart to want to be in control of everything, or at least to have something in my life that no one has any say over, and I'm the ultimate authority of. I think of uh, C.S. Lewis, he, in, in coming to faith, well, he, he said, the thing that I hated most all throughout my life was people who interfered. I just wanted to be left alone. That was kind of his outlook on life. I just wanted to be left, just stop bothering me. <laughs> And he said, what I realized and what I didn't like about this whole God thing was God was the ultimate interferer. And I realized that the minute I said yes, it was, that there was not one part of my life around which I, couldn't, I could put a little fence and say, keep out. <laughs> that God had access to every part of what it means to be me, even my, things like my identity, who I am. God had, had access <clears throat> and was over all of it. And so Satan does this. There's, there's doubt to the integrity of God, doubt to the trustworthiness. And, and how did that happen? I would suggest it happened the exact same way it happens for me as I go throughout my day. See, all I need to do to, to start down this path is to, is to give Scripture a new context, to, to twist Scripture just a little bit, to interpret it in a way that appeals to um, my supremacy, my authority, my independence, my whatever it might be. And it's really easy to find verses that do that, isn't it? I love those verses. Well, I love them for me. I don't love them for like my wife or my kids or other people in my life, but I like them for me because I want to have that unfettered freedom. And this pattern continues all throughout time, doesn't it? Think of Jesus. Jesus in, in Luke chapter 4. And, and, and again, think, think about what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is starting his ministry. Remember how he starts it, what he does? He first goes down to what river, do you remember? The Jordan River. And he's baptized by John. Right? He goes through the river, and as soon as he's baptized, he's, it says the Spirit of God led him out into the 
wilderness, the Judean wilderness, you like right in the Jordan River. When, like when we go over there, we'll do baptisms in the Jordan River here. And, and you're standing in there and you, and you just look right out and you just see this bleak, sandy desert with just brown mountains. And it's just, uh, but this is immediately, think about what Jesus is doing here. He's taking on the story of Israel. When Israel came into the land, they went through the Jordan River and possessed, they they wandered 40 years. Jesus goes into the river and he goes out into the desert for 40 days. That's why he's called the new Adam. He's taking Israel's story and moving it forward. And when he goes out into the desert, he gets the same thing that our very first parents got. Satan going, hey, can I ask you some questions about, about things? And so first he tempts him about food, then he tempts him about kind of temporal power. He goes after the body, he goes after the soul. But then Satan's most creative assault, I think, is the third one. Satan, because what what Jesus did every time that Satan kind of said, you know, it'd be nice to eat, right? You're hungry, wouldn't you like to have power? Jesus responds every time by what, saying what? Or appealing to what? Yeah, he quotes scripture, Right? No, there's this and there's, you know, that sort of thing. And so Satan's tactic the third time is to go, okay, two can play this game. Uh, what about this? And so it says he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, a lot of stuff in the Old Testament about the son of God and what God has intended for him and that sort of thing. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from there because it is written He will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Now he's quoting Psalm 91 and he does it accurately. So what's wrong with it? He's quoting the Bible. (laughs) He does it quite accurately, perfectly. In fact, he quotes it. See, here's what's wrong with it. Instead of seeing this section in Psalm 91 as it really is, which is a a general promise by God to care for his people. Satan inappropriately applies it to a situation that's really about testing God. In this case, testing God's sovereignty. Satan's application of applying the Psalm 91 um, would lead someone into a reckless lifestyle. It would be like someone saying to you, hey, you think God's sovereign, right? Well, why can't you just drive back and forth 100 miles an hour on, you know, back and forth on the freeway? You know, if it's your time to go, it's your time to go. God's in control. And no, that's inappropriately testing God, putting God to the test. See, and Jesus sees right through it. And once again, he thwarts the attack by quoting scripture and, and, and he quotes Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, 16, and he applies it accurately. Jesus answered him, um, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. The apostle Paul, I think was right. In Ephesians chapter six, his letter to this church living in Ephesus, he instructed this church, he said, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics. An interesting word, the tactics of the devil. And then, and then he compares what that looks like to um, the kind of equipment that a Roman soldier would have, whom he might have actually been looking at while he was writing this because he was in prison, 
<laughs> under Rome while, while writing this. And he told the church to live with truth like a belt wrapped around yourself. And he tells them to put on the breastplate of righteousness, that they were to embrace the message of the gospel, he said, which was like good shoes so that you don't lose your footing when you're out and that sort of thing. They, they were to pick up the shield of faith. They were to put on the helmet of salvation. And nearly all of these different weapons that he mentions, they're almost all defensive weapons to like kind of stop things. But there's one piece of armor which is meant for offensive, and it's what we're talking about. Paul called them to use the, the sword of the spirit, which he says that that is... That's this. He says, that's God's scripture that we're reading and interpreting and, and, and living in that story. And he says, this, this right here, this sword, he says, it's actually capable of demolishing strongholds, which is kind of a weird idea or, or concept there. But strongholds would be these satanically inspired lines of thinking about who God is, about who I am, about my identity, about my value in life, about my purpose, about what I'm called into, all of these lines of thinking which squelch human flourishing. But when rightly used, the Bible, it is the source of Christian power. I mean, it, it, it is the source. If you want to live a fulfilling Christian life, a flourishing Christian life, God says, this is the one thing you must utilize and must have in your life. It's interesting when so many times Jesus talks about, remember, uh, Jesus talks about giving the keys of the kingdom to his people. Keys are about opening things and closing things, unlocking, making things available, right? Um, in another place, Paul, when, when, when he's writing to um, uh, I think it's the church of Corinth where he says, um, we have received the, the, the message of uh, reconciliation and we've been called ambassadors for Christ as though God were making his appeal to the world through us. Think for just a second about an ambassador and a king. An ambassador has to know who the king is. He needs to understand the message of the king. He needs to be able to deliver that message and live that message. He's never off the clock <laughs> in a way that, that works, that, that connects with that people, whatever land he's in. We're called Christ's ambassadors with a message from God himself. It's like we're Hermes. Although I hate that name. I don't want to be Hermes, but we're playing the role of delivering the message of God to people and their lives. And that is the most powerful thing we could ever do. If you remember, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, Acts chapter one. He says, you will be my witnesses, my ambassadors, my representatives to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. From where Jesus was speaking, we're just about the ends of the earth. We're the other side. Even there, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to take my message and my message, he says, it will have this life-giving property and power you've never experienced before. One of my favorite stories is of uh, Mary Ann Bird. Mary Ann Bird wrote in her, her, her memoirs called The Whisper Test. You might have 
heard, heard this story before. And she tells this story about when, when she was a little girl, she was born with a lot of birth defects. She had a cleft palate and she was deaf in one ear and her, her, her feet were kind of lopsided. And, and um, uh, you can imagine the life that she lived as a little girl. It wasn't just the physical trauma, but it, it, it was the emotional things that she went through as friends at school would make fun of her. and They would say things to her like, uh, why's your lip, you know, why's your lip look like that? And she would lie. She would say, I, I, uh, I cut it on a piece of glass. And the day that she hated the most, she's deaf in one ear, was the hearing test day at school. And so once a year, teacher would call them forward and they'd have to flatten their hand over their ear and she would whisper something to them like, Oh, you have new shoes. The sky is blue. And if they could hear it, they would repeat it back to her. And so she would cheat every year. She would, uh, her, 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 her good ear, she wouldn't cover up. She'd kind of cover it like that so she could still hear and make it look like she could still hear. And um, one year, um, she went on to say that she had Mrs. Leonard. And Mrs. Leonard was like the, the, the school favorite. Everyone loved Mrs. Leonard just... People wanted to be her pet. People wanted to be her best friend. People love Miss Leonard. And, uh, and the dreaded day of whisper, whisper test came. And so she went forward to Mrs. Leonard's desk and, and uh, covered her ear, kind of cupped it like that. And uh, she was waiting. She said, I waited for those words. And so she put it over there. But, and she said, but I didn't hear, you have new shoes. Or I didn't hear, the sky is blue. She said, I waited for the words that God must have put into her mouth. Because what she said was, I wish you were my little girl. And she changed my life. Changed my life. Why? Because a message came that said, you have value. You are beautiful. You are loved. There's meaning and there's one who is calling you. And what I would suggest is that we are ambassadors we are witnesses of a message of a God who says, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little boy. But didn't leave it at mere sentimentality. Made a way for me to become a son. Made a way for you to become a daughter. And every single time, this is why Christian witness is so important. This is why how we live is so important. Why? Because I'm carrying a message from God himself. And it tells people they have value. And when we come to this meal where we take bread and a cup representative of Christ's body broken for me, his blood shed for me, I should hear the whisper, 